This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Of Withered Apples by Philip K. Dick. It's read for us by Julie Davis, and we'll be discussing it with her afterwards. Of Withered Apples by Philip K. Dick Something was tapping on the window, blowing up against the pane again and again, carried by the wind, tapping faintly, insistently. Lori, sitting on the couch, pretended not to hear. She gripped her book tightly and turned a page. The tapping came again, louder and more imperative. It could not be ignored. Darn, Lori said, throwing her book down on the coffee table and hurrying to the window. She grasped the heavy brass handles and lifted. For a moment, the window resisted. Then, with a protesting groan, it reluctantly rose. Cold autumn air rushed into the room. The bit of leaf ceased tapping and swirled against the woman's throat, dancing to the floor. Lori picked the leaf up. It was old and brown. Her heart skipped a beat as she slipped the leaf into the pocket of her jeans. Against her loins, the leaf cut and tingled, a little hard point piercing her smooth skin and sending exciting shudders up and down her spine. She stood at the open window a moment, sniffing the air. The air was full of the presence of trees and rocks, of great boulders and remote places. It was time. Time to go again. She touched the leaf. She was wanted. Quickly, Lori left the big living room, hurrying through the hall into the dining room. The dining room was empty. A few cords of laughter drifted from the kitchen. Lori pushed the kitchen door open. Steve? Her husband and his father were sitting around the kitchen table, smoking their cigars and drinking steaming black coffee. What is it? Steve demanded, frowning at his young wife. Ed and I are in the middle of business. I, I want to ask you something. The two men gazed at her, brown-haired Stephen, his dark eyes full of the stubborn dignity of New England men, and his father, silent and withdrawn in her presence. Ed Patterson scarcely noticed her. He rustled through a sheaf of feed bills, his broad back turned toward her. What is it? Steve demanded impatiently. What do you want? Can't it wait? I have to go, Lori blurted. Go where? Outside. Anxiety flooded over her. This is the last time. I promise I won't go again after this, okay? She tried to smile, but her heart was pounding too hard. Please let me, Steve. Where does she go? Ed rumbled. Steve grunted in annoyance. Up in the hills, some old abandoned place up there. Ed's gray eyes flickered. Abandoned farm? Yes, you know it? The old Rickley farm. Rickley moved away years ago. Couldn't get anything to grow. Not up there. Grounds all rocks. Bad soil. A lot of clay and stones. The place is all overgrown, tumbled down. What kind of a farm was it? Orchard. Fruit orchard. Never yielded a damn thing. Thin old trees. Waste of effort. Steve looked at his pocket watch. You'll be back in time to fix dinner? Yes. Lori moved toward the door. 
Then can I go? Steve's face twisted as he made up his mind. Lori waited impatiently, scarcely breathing. She had never got used to Vermont men and their slow, deliberate way. Boston people were quite different, and her group had been more the college youth's dances and talk and late laughter. Why do you go up there? Steve grumbled. Don't ask me, Steve. Just let me go. This is the last time. She writhed in agony. She clenched her fists. Please. Steve looked out the window. The cold autumn wind swirled through the trees. All right. But it's going to snow. I don't see why you want to. Lori ran to get her coat from the closet. I'll be back to fix dinner, she shouted joyfully. She hurried to the front porch, buttoning her coat, her heart racing. Her cheeks were flushed a deep, excited red as she closed the door behind her, her blood pounding in her veins. Cold wind whipped against her, rumpling her hair, plucking at her body. She took a deep breath of the wind and started down the steps. She walked rapidly onto the field, toward the bleak line of the hills beyond. Except for the wind, there was no sound. She patted her pocket. The dry leaf broke and dug hungrily into her. I'm coming, she whispered, a little awed and frightened. I'm on my way. Higher and higher the woman climbed. She passed through a deep cleft between two rocky ridges. Huge roots from old stumps spurted out on all sides. She followed a dried-up creek bed, winding and turning. After a time, low mists began to blow about her. At the top of the ridge, she halted, breathing deeply, looking back the way she had come. A few drops of rain stirred the leaves around her. Again, the wind moved through the great dead trees along the ridge. Lori turned and started on, her head down, hands in her coat pockets. She was on a rocky field, overgrown with weeds and dead grass. After a time, she came to a ruined fence, broken and rotting. She stepped over it. She passed a tumbled-down well, half-filled with stones and earth. Her heart beat quickly, fluttering with nervous excitement. She was almost there. She passed the remains of a building, sagging timbers and broken glass, a few ruined pieces of furniture strewn nearby. An old automobile tire caked and cracked, some damp rags heaped over rusty bent bed springs. And there it was, directly ahead. Along the edge of the field was a grove of ancient trees, lifeless trees withered and dead, their thin blackened stalks rising up leaflessly. Broken sticks stuck up in the hard ground, row after row of dead trees, some bent and leaning, torn loose from the rocky soil by the unending wind. Lori crossed the field to the trees, her lungs laboring painfully. The wind surged against her without respite, whipping the foul-smelling mists into her nostrils and face. Her smooth skin was damp and shiny with the mist. She coughed and hurried on, stepping over the rocks and clods of earth, trembling with fear and anticipation. She circled around the grove of trees, almost to the edge of the ridge. Carefully she stepped among the sliding heaps of rocks. Then she stopped, rigid. Her chest rose and fell with the effort of breathing. I came, she gasped. For a long time she gazed at the withered old apple tree. She could not take her eyes from it. 
The sight of the ancient tree fascinated and repelled her. It was the only one alive, the only tree of all the grove still living. All the others were dead, dried up. They had lost the struggle, but this tree still clung to life. The tree was hard and barren. Only a few dead leaves hung from it, and some withered apples, dried and seasoned by the wind and mists. They had stayed there on the branches, forgotten and abandoned. The ground around the tree was cracked and bleak, stones and decayed heaps of old leaves in ragged clumps. "'I came,' Lori said again. She took the leaf from her pocket and held it cautiously out. "'This tapped at the window. I knew when I heard it.' She smiled mischievously, her red lips curling. "'It tapped and tapped, trying to get in. I ignored it. It was so, so impetuous. It annoyed me.' The tree swayed ominously, its gnarled branches rubbed together. Something in the sound made Lori pull away. Terror rushed through her. She hurried back along the ridge, scrambling frantically out of reach. "'Don't!' she whispered. "'Please!' The wind ceased. The tree became silent. For a long time Lori watched it apprehensively. Night was coming. The sky was darkening rapidly. A burst of frigid wind struck her, half turning her around. She shuddered, bracing herself against it, pulling her long coat around her. Far below, the floor of the valley was disappearing into shadow, into the vast cloud of night. In the darkening mists, the tree was stern and menacing, more ominous than usual. A few leaves blew from it, drifting and swirling with the wind, a leaf blew past her, and she tried to catch it. The leaf escaped, dancing, back toward the tree. Lori followed a little way and then stopped, gasping and laughing. No, she said firmly, her hands on her hips. I won't. There was silence. Suddenly the heaps of decayed leaves blew up in a furious circle around the tree. They quieted down, settling back. No, Lori said. I'm not afraid of you. You can't hurt me. But her heart was hammering with fear. She moved back farther away. The tree remained silent. Its wiry branches were motionless. Lori regained her courage. This is the last time I can come, she said. Steve says I can't come any more. He doesn't like it. She waited, but the tree did not respond. They're sitting in the kitchen, the two of them, smoking cigars and drinking coffee, adding up feed bills. She wrinkled her nose. That's all they ever do. Add and subtract feed bills, figure and figure, profit and loss, government taxes, depreciation on the equipment. The tree did not stir. Lori shivered. A little more rain fell, big icy drops that slid down her cheeks down the back of her neck, and inside her heavy coat. She moved closer to the tree. I won't be back. I won't see you again. This is the last time. I wanted to tell you. The tree moved. Its branches whipped into sudden life. Lori felt something hard and thin cut across her shoulder. Something caught her around the waist, tugging her forward. She struggled desperately, trying to pull herself free. Suddenly, the tree released her. She stumbled back, laughing and trembling with fear. No, she gasped. You can't have me. She hurried to the edge of the ridge. 
You'll never get me again, understand? And I'm not afraid of you. She stood, waiting and watching, trembling with cold and fear. Suddenly she turned and fled down the side of the ridge, sliding and falling on the loose stones. Blind terror gripped her. She ran on and on down the steep slope, grabbing at roots and weeds. Something rolled beside her shoe, something small and hard. She bent down and picked it up. It was a little dried apple. Lori gazed back up the slope at the tree. The tree was almost lost in the swirling mists. It stood jutting up against the black sky, a hard, unmoving pillar. Lori put the apple in her coat pocket and continued down the side of the hill. When she reached the floor of the valley, she took the apple out of her pocket. It was late. A deep hunger began to gnaw inside her. She thought suddenly of dinner, the warm kitchen, the white tablecloth, steaming stew and biscuits. As she walked, she nibbled on the little apple. Lori sat up in bed, the covers falling away from her. The house was dark and silent. A few night noises sounded faintly, far off. It was past midnight. Beside her, Stephen slept quietly, turned over on his side. What had wakened her? Lori pushed her dark hair back out of her eyes, shaking her head. What? A spasm of pain burst loose inside her. She gasped and put her hand to her stomach. For a time she wrestled silently, jaws locked, swaying back and forth. The pain went away. Lori sank back. She cried out. A faint, thin cry. Steve! Stephen stirred. He turned over a little, grunting in his sleep. The pain came again, harder. She fell forward on her face, writhing in agony. The pain ripped at her, tearing at her belly. She screamed, a shrill wail of fear and pain. Steve sat up. For God's sake! He rubbed his eyes and snapped on the lamp. What the hell? Lori lay on her side, gasping and moaning, her eyes staring, knotted fists pressed into her stomach. The pain twisted and seared, devouring her, eating into her. Lori! Stephen grated. What is it? She screamed again and again until the house rocked with echoes. She slid from the bed onto the floor, her body writhing and jerking, her face unrecognizable. Ed came hurrying into the room, pulling his bathrobe around him. What's going on? The two men stared helplessly down at the woman on the floor. Good God, Ed said. He closed his eyes. The day was cold and dark. Snow fell silently over the streets and houses, over the red brick county hospital building. Dr. Blair walked slowly up the gravel path to his Ford car. He slid inside and turned the ignition key. The motor leaped alive, and he let the brake out. I'll call you later, Dr. Blair said. There are certain particulars. I know, Steve muttered. He was still dazed. His face was gray and puffy from lack of sleep. I left some sedatives for you. Try to get a little rest. You think, Steve asked suddenly, if we had called you earlier. No, Blair glanced up at him sympathetically. I don't. In a thing like that, there's not much chance, not after it's burst. Then it was appendicitis. Blair nodded. Yes. If we hadn't been so damn far out, 
Steve said bitterly. Stuck out in the country, no hospital, nothing, miles from town. And we didn't realize at first. Well, it's over now. The upright Ford moved forward a little. All at once a thought came to the doctor. One more thing. What is it? Steve said dully. Blair hesitated. Post-mortems. Very unfortunate. I don't think there's any reason for one in this case. I'm certain in my own mind, but I wanted to ask. What is it? Is there anything the girl might have swallowed? Did she put things in her mouth? Needles while she was sewing? Pins? Coins? Anything like that? Seeds? Did she ever eat watermelon? Sometimes the appendix... No. Steve shook his head wearily. I don't know. It was just a thought. Dr. Blair drove slowly off, down the narrow tree-lined street, leaving two dark streaks, two soiled lines that marred the pale, glistening snow. Spring came, warm and sunny. The ground turned black and rich. Overhead the sun shone, a hot white orb full of strength. Stop here, Steve muttered. Ed Patterson brought the car to a halt at the side of the street. He turned off the motor. The two men sat in silence, neither of them speaking. At the end of the street, children were playing. A high school boy was mowing a lawn, pushing the machine over the wet grass. The street was dark in the shade of the great trees growing along each side. Nice, Ed said. Steve nodded without answering. Moodily, he watched a young girl walking by, a shopping bag under her arm. The girl climbed the stairs of a porch and disappeared into an old-fashioned yellow house. Steve pushed the car door open. Come on, let's get it over with. Ed lifted the wreath of flowers from the back seat and put them in his son's lap. You'll have to carry it. It's your job. All right. Steve grabbed the flowers and stepped out onto the pavement. The two men walked up the street together, silent and thoughtful. It's been seven or eight months now, Steve said abruptly. At least. Ed lit the cigar as they walked along, puffing clouds of gray smoke around them. Maybe a little more. I never should have brought her up here. She lived in town all her life. She didn't know anything about the country. It would have happened anyhow. If we had been closer to a hospital... The doctor said it wouldn't have made any difference, even if we'd called him right away instead of waiting till morning. They came to the corner and turned. And as you know... Forget it, Steve said, suddenly tense. The sounds of the children had fallen behind them. The houses had thinned out. Their footsteps rang out against the pavement as they walked along. We're almost there, Steve said. They came to a rise. Beyond the rise was a heavy brass fence running the length of a small field, a green field, neat and even, with carefully placed plaques of white marble crisscrossing it. Here we are, Steve said tightly. They keep it nice. Can we get in from this side? We can try. Ed started along the brass fence, looking for a gate. Suddenly Steve halted, grunting. He stared across the field, his face white. Look. What is it? Ed took off his glasses to see. What are you looking at? I was right, 
Steve's voice was low and indistinct. I thought there was something. Last time we were here, I saw... You see it? I'm not sure I see the tree, if that's what you mean. In the center of the neat green field, the little apple tree rose proudly. Its bright leaves sparkled in the warm sunlight. The young tree was strong and very healthy. It swayed confidently with the wind, its supple trunk moist with sweet spring sap. They're red, Steve said softly. They're already red. How the hell can they be red? It's only April. How the hell can they be red so soon? I don't know, Ed said. I don't know anything about apples. A strange chill moved through him, but graveyards always made him uncomfortable. Maybe we ought to go. Her cheeks were that color, Steve said, his voice low, when she had been running. Remember? The two men gazed uneasily at the little apple tree, its shiny red fruit glistening in the spring sunlight, branches moving gently with the wind. I remember all right, Ed said grimly. Come on. He took his son's arm insistently, the wreath of flowers forgotten. Come on, Steve. Let's get out of here. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. I'm Jenny. And I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics Podcast and A Good Story is Hard to Find Podcast. Thanks so much for reading the story, Julie. It was, um, it's, it's been one of the more difficult stories uh, for me to get the copyright status cleared up about. Um, and not only did you help with the recording, but you also helped get the status clarified. Well, but you were really- very welcome. I actually, it was a hard story to read for some reason, but out loud, but I actually enjoyed reading through it the several times I did because it was a confusing story, I thought. It is confusing. I, I, it's not one of the ones I use a lot at school. I use a lot of Philip K. Dick stories at school, but I, I'm one of the reasons I don't use this one that much is it's, I'm not sure what to make of some of it. And, and, uh, it's also, it is not as easy, easily read aloud as some, uh, not that I, you know, tried to burden you with this, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, I tend to read out sections over and over mm-hmm. um, and go back and, t- and talk about what's going on in that section. And um, it doesn't, it doesn't flow like some, but it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I think the most similar story that I can think of that I've read of Dick's is um, one called uh, the cookie lady, which is about a little boy who goes and visits an old woman uh who is somewhere between his home and school and eats cookies and she kills him. And, oh. <laughs> um, that's the end of the story. And it's basically oh. a Hansel and Gretel story, right? Oh. But it's done with all this weird fantasy that's going on. And this, it feels like one of those brothers Grimm stories retold or recast somehow to me. I agree, and that's. I kept trying to think, what story is he riffing off of? Because there were so many familiar feeling elements, but I could never pin it down to anything. And so I finally said, is it just completely original? And he pulled those kind of elements and put them together himself. I think that might be the case. Yeah, it's, it feels very Brothers Graham to me, but it it's not one that I'm familiar with. 
Yeah, it reminded me of those old historical stories that we do here on the podcast. (laughs) Like weird paranormal things that you can't quite put your finger on. Well, you know, there there's lots of you know there are um, malicious trees in literature. You know, the in the Hobbit, some people in this podcast are listening to or reading the Hobbit, right? Oh yeah. Uh, oh no, it's the Lord of the Rings, I guess. That there's a there's an evil tree that tries to kill Mister Mister Frodo. The tree's trying to kill you. <laughs> well, also the I mean that's an element in the Wizard of Oz in the book, mm-hmm. also in the movie, I guess, but in the book they're. Some not nice trees. Uh, but in most cases, the trees are malicious uh, for not a real apparent reasons. I mean, this tree, uh, this tree has a real apparent reason to me. I mean, I, I get the, I get the reason why the, the tree is so murderous. Well, and in the Wizard of Oz, the trees are protecting themselves and their right. Food. Are they? Okay. Yeah, it's mostly about their their fruit. <laughs> I mean, in this book, this story too. You know. Well, uh, I've I've been um, thinking about you know this. So, apples are the tree's gift to us, right? We think we say thank you, tree. tree <laughs> and it says you spread the seeds. Thank you. The tree gives us the special deal, where we get the the fruit and then we spread the seeds around, uh, uh, usually by pooping them out rather than by. Um, no, it is, not, it is not. It is not by pooping it out. You don't what? eat the seeds of an apple. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm, Do you I'm eat not, the whole core? No, no, you throw the core away and it grows no. an apple tree. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not just talking about me. I'm, I'm human beings. I'm talking about animals that eat fruit. Okay. Oh, no, like specific monkeys, monkeys, and and other uh, Mon- apple eating monkeys. It's wild. I like to see that. Bears are always pooping out all sorts of stuff. All right, but, and it's nice, you know, it's good fertilizer. It's it mm-hmm. moves it away from the original <laughs> place. So, it, it's it, we, we're sort of in a uh, we're part of a weird sex party that we're not even aware of. There's there, there's the tree way to take the natural cycle and turn it into a weird sex party. Well, it is a weird sex party <laughs> because Philip K. Dick does that for us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's yeah. the bees bring you know the the gametes around uh, fertilizing the the fruit and then we take the fruit and we take it somewhere else we're all part of this weird thing that the tree is ultimately responsible for because uh i mean i think bees might be able to not live without it but we 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 could certainly live without fruit we just choose not to but a tree in an orchard has been domesticated and it needs uh, you know a dedicated farmer to make it work and this orchard has been abandoned oh good point so this tree is desperate absolutely and it wants to live it's not doing its normal uh, friendly tree fruit thing right there's nothing around no person no I mean the whole forest and orchard sounded abandoned so no creatures in sight Well, and also now that you say that, I think I'm looking at it and it says um, Ed or Steve was telling his father that it never yielded a damn thing. Thin old trees, waste of effort. And so to the people, it was a waste of effort. But to the trees themselves, of course, it's a matter of survival. They're not looking at it as providing something for someone. Mm -hmm. They are trying to survive. Right. So that's an interesting viewpoint there. You know, the other thing that is not in, in uh, the cookie later that is definitely in this one is sort of Philip K. Dick's relationship, not 
with you know his neighborhood as much as with his wife. It's the domestic life. This is one of the most strange wife characters he's ever done, I think. And he does a lot of strange wife characters. <laughs> um, she's a child, basically, right? The way she acts and talks, she's just a, she's like a child. I don't know. I really wanted to know the story of what came before this story. Because the way she's acting is maybe part child, but also part wife having an affair. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's, that's a recurring theme in Dick's stories as well. Oh, okay. But... But, uh, like, when she, she goes to her husband uh, at the table and says, May I go outside, please? <laughs> will you be back in time for dinner? <laughs> yes, you, yes, I will, of course. She rolls her eyes almost. You know, it's like, wait a second. This is not a husband-wife relationship, even in the 1950s. Yeah. Well, and this story was full of her contradictory behavior. It was like he changed it for each part of the story, depending on what he wanted to do. It wasn't consistent because... At the be- this is one of the things that confused me because she touches a leaf. She was wanted. So then she yeah. goes and she's asking for permission. And um, and she's, please let me go. And he's like, oh, all right. And then she's, yay, I'm coming. I'm on my way. And then she gets up there and she's like, oh, I'm not coming anymore. Yeah, Steve and, says, I can't you, come you anymore. You will never get me again. Yeah, and she's blaming it on Steve, but it's her. She's uh, like, I'm not coming yeah. back. I'm not doing it again. And you're like... What again? What? What again? Why? What does he know? Why is he letting you come up here? Uh, what the hell's going on? Jenny has an interpretation of that line. I can't come anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I read this like a teenager. I couldn't help it. There's so many times where I was just like, oh, Philip K. Dick, you are so naughty. (laughs) Okay, can I just read a few? And I I apologize. Okay, so. uh, Well, even just when the leaf first comes, she sticks it in her pocket, right. and it says, "Against right. her loins, the leaf cut and tingled <laughs> a little it's like a hard in her pocket, piercing her smooth skin and sending exciting shudders up and down her spine." I was like, "Really?" And then she rushes there, and it says that her heart was racing, and her cheeks are flushed, and her blood is pounding. That sounds mm-hmm. like something else, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And she <laughs> stops, rigid. Her chest rose and fell with the effort of breathing. <laughs> I can't even do this. I came, she gasped. <laughs> and this is when she gets to the tree. And I was like, okay. Shocking. So then I was really... Con- well, she's, she says that, though, earlier as well. She says, I'm coming, she whispered, a yeah. little odd and frightened. I'm on my way. Right. And then she says... Higher and higher the woman climbed. Yeah, so it, there is a sex met- sort of visual metaphor going on. Well, I feel so innocent. I didn't catch, I mean, I did the leaf and the tingling. I got, yeah, but wow. You knew you'd probably be upset with me. I'm not (laughs) upset. I just like, I just didn't even look at that. Well, okay. Yeah, I didn't get it either. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. I was thinking fairy tale, mostly just. I got, I got, I got as much as you did, I think. Okay. Thank goodness. (laughs) I, I guess I do agree that later on her behavior is confusing then because she's so excited to go there. She's obviously been there before. Yeah. And, you know, she will, she's abandoning cooking dinner, which clearly is her role to go. And then at the end, she seems so afraid. And I guess I didn't understand that transition either. I wasn't sure what switched it over from pleasure to fear, I guess. So the first time I read this story, I I read through and I said, what the hell is going on? (laughs) So, and then I, I didn't even like I didn't even say I didn't notice the wreath. 
right? There's a wreath in the car. And I said, where are these dudes? And where's the wife? I, like, really start a not understanding she's dead, right? Right. And then, and then the, where are they walking? Why are we looking at these people on the sidewalk? And then, what's that? They're, they're in a cemetery? Holy crap. She's dead. And, like, I'm really not understanding what's going on. Oh, you missed the whole conversation on. with I the doctor, tons. then. Oh, I, I, I just thought, oh, she, she something bad happened. Postmortems, et cetera. Uh, yeah, well, I guess. I guess I must have just, like, I must have been reading it in a hurry or whatever. Yeah. So I was really shocked. Um, it's not like it's a big twist after the point where the doctor says, hey, uh, yeah, can I do an autopsy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I think there's there's some something immensely strange going on in and it confuses my students as well as me, is there's a one-sided conversation happening. Uh, I want to say Julie. <laughs> it's Lori. It's not Julie. <laughs> oh, Lori, is talking to the, Lori is talking to the tree. I'm staying away And the from tree appears to be talking to her. Yeah, when it's whipping its branches around and... Mm. And tapping on the window, right? So it's yeah. saying something. And not so if you look at just Yeah, if you look at her side of the conversation... It sounds like there she's asking questions or she it's she's being demanded something and it's not clear exactly what is being it, it, I think if if you decoded that you would understand everything right Well and you know I was confused too by the doctor part it, it I was surprised when it ended up that she was dead because some of the things he was saying let's put, you know, reality on hold for a second and go the fairy tale direction. You know, she had this relationship with the tree. I thought maybe she gave birth to one. <laughs> yeah, because of tearing her apart. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're making all these comments like looking down at her and confusion and horror before they get to the hospital or whatever. And I thought, oh well, you know, gut wrenching agony, huge cramps of pain. It, it made sense in my head. Yeah, it sounded like she's having a baby. Right. Know? So that's where I thought it was going. So it took me a while with that in my head to figure out what had happened, I guess. It's just not the way it was expected, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm sorry. I always expected all of that stuff. I mean, the minute she bit into that apple, I was like, oh, baby, I don't know what's happening, but you just did what you shouldn't have done if you want to stay away from the tree. And then when that other stuff happened, I was like, oh, new tree is going to grow somewhere. This it's is like, her. How hungry are you? Do you have to be? That's one of my students says. An old withered apple, uh, apple tree throws an apple at you. You know, an old withered, dried up apple. And you, how hungry do you have to be to pick it up off the ground and start chewing on it? But to after, me, after you know, it's malevolent. But to me, that was her connection with the tree. That somehow part yeah. of her was part of the tree because I just looked at that and went, oh. Okay, there's a deeper connection with the tree because just looking at the apple made this hunger grow and she started nibbling it with, you know, almost absentmindedly. And I'm like, oh, you're, you're a goner. That's it. You're done. Right. And she had just told She's the tree beauty. that was the last time. So that was yep. me. It was, you'll Been never up there before. get me again. And I'm like, what? <laughs> if you're so afraid of whatever this is, what are you not paying attention to? So it's almost like on a subconscious level. It's just a natural cycle that she's she can't really fight when she starts right. eating that apple. And so then later, you're just like, oh, at the end, you're just like, are you going to turn into her? What? Where did Lori come from? When you say again. Right. Well, and there's this funny line at the end. I don't think it's supposed to be funny, but he says, <laughs> Steve says to his dad, I never should have brought her up here. She lived in town all her mm -hmm. life. She didn't know anything about the country. And I'm thinking, well, I grew up in the country and we didn't have trees like that. 
Oh, they just, they didn't tell you. <laughs> they had to protect you from the, the harsh truth. Don't go up to the Ricky farm. I mean, I played, in the, I played in the woods all summer long. I had enchanted forests. I talked to the trees. I mean, I was a country girl. Mm. But um, What did the trees say back is my question. Yeah, I don't remember that part. <laughs> oh, you mm. just blanked it out like Lori. Okay, she took your side. You got away you know. clean. You got away clean. Well, and how about this? Steve is acting so solicitous at the end. I shouldn't have brought her up here. And yet, right before that, he's saying, uh, the father is saying, even if we'd have called him the doctor right away instead of waiting till morning. And I'm like, that's she gut wrenching pain. She's screaming yep. and jerking around. You, her face is unrecognizable. And you waited until morning. <laughs> if you go back to the end of that scene, what? if you go back to the end of that scene and you look at how the, the two people react to her, right? She's in bed with her husband, I guess. And it says, uh, Lori, Steve graded. What is it? She screamed again and again until the house rocked with the echoes. She slid from the bed onto the floor, her body writhing and jerking, her face unrecognizable. And then it says, Ed came in, hurrying into the room, pulling his bathrobe around him. What's going on? And You, you kind of read it that way, too, and that's the way I read it. What's going on? Like, what's, what's the problem here? You're waking yeah, me up. Yeah, because he's stern. Why are you annoying us with your pain? (laughs) Exactly. And then the two men stared helplessly down at the woman on the floor. Good God, Ed said. He closed his eyes. And then they wait till morning. Maybe she'll be better on her own, guys. It's like what a, it's like they're they're saying this what a pathetic child is is what I was thinking. I don't know. I just felt like if her face is unrecognizable, they're like, This is horrible. (laughs) That's why he closed his eyes. They are Vermont people though, right? And Vermont people According to Lori, well, yes, and they're very slow and methodical and probably wouldn't go outside for help for any reason unless they really thought they needed it, like maybe after she died or something. (laughs) Well, then Steve shouldn't have been saying, I shouldn't have brought her up from town. She's so gentle and delicate. (laughs) Then he should have acted like it while she was alive. I agree. So uh, uh, adulthood, if not manliness, in this story is conferred by smoking cigars drinking black coffee, and looking at feed bills. <laughs> so, And it's repeated twice, right? So this mm-hmm. the first time, they're sitting at the table, smoking, uh, drinking black coffee, and uh, collating feed bills. And then she goes up to the tree and says, Hey, tree, how's it going? Uh, my <laughs> husband's back at home talking to uh, his dad. They're collating uh, feed bills, smoking uh, cigars, and drinking black coffee. And I'm like... That's that's the sort of sound when I hear the, that sort of talk. That reminds me of when I was a kid. You know, what are the what are your parents doing? <laughs> yeah, they're you know they're playing with papers on <laughs> on the table, mm-hmm. and they're not interested in playing with me. They they like to smoke cigarettes and drink black coffee because I those are things I don't do right. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's like you're you're participating in something I'm not allowed to do, and more importantly, I wouldn't be interested in doing. She she is uh, the way I described it. Why does she go up there? She I said she goes scrumping. The, that's one of the English words I learned when I watched a documentary on apples. I like scrumping as a word. It's a wonder, wonderful word, isn't it? It's related mm. to the word scrimping, by the way. Scrimping, oh. which we do know. Uh, scrumping is stealing apples, and this is something that little kids do. They go, you know, buy an orchard on the way. 
from yeah. school or home and you just go and grab an apple and eat it maybe five and fill your pockets and run off <laughs> and technically that is what she's doing even if the farm is abandoned right. um, and and I, I was thinking you know I could sort of see myself doing that as a kid you know that's the exact sort of place you'd say so cool these people used to live here I wonder what stories are going on why did they leave and all that you know it's sort of a cool thing for kids to do it's, it's I kind of see that as one of the ways of looking at Lori is she is a child but then there's this other way and it's this sexual way that I did see I just didn't see it quite as deeply as Jenny yeah. did um, and and the fact that what is the message that's what I'm always uh, saying you know some teachers I guess a lot of teachers assign theme what is the theme of this story I don't know what theme is but I I think maybe the author's trying to tell me something and it might be something simple like um, people are funny <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, uh, be careful with your money or something like that. And in this story, I think uh, nature's not always your friend is, is like what I was thinking. Or you can't take a city mouse to the country. <laughs> you know what? There's, a, there's probably... Oh, I was looking at it more as the intersection of fairy tale with real life because... Of this one one paragraph at the end where I'm like, oh, Steve, you're going to get right back in the same situation where they're kind of sitting before they go to the graveyard, and but they've driven near it, and they're just kind of waiting in the car, and it, the neighborhood's being described, and Ed says, nice, and Steve nodded without answering. Moodily, he watched a young girl walking by, a shopping bag under her arm, the Carl climbed the stairs of a porch and disappeared into an old-fashioned yellow house. Steve hmm. pushed the car door open. Come on, let's get it over with. And I'm like, oh, dusting off our hands, ready to go for this girl who lives in this old-fashioned yellow house. To me, I'm hmm. like, he's like, hmm, time to move on. And I'm thinking. Yeah, and then he says, you'll have to carry it. It's your job. Yeah. It's like, it's like what, the burden? Uh, and yes, it is the burden. It's the It's the wreath. But also the burden of what killing you like i don't yeah there's something weird going on between the father and the son and and, and the father he, lives in the house and and then him watching goes. that girl i was just like oh yeah. what fairy tale is this out of she lives in this old-fashioned yellow house is he gonna be interested in her or somebody like her next so that was kind of my thinking of where where why that was even in there well he needs it, someone to cook him dinner <laughs> He does. He's not going to he get that beef stew on his own. And what happened to uh, Ed's wife? You know, there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of things you could read into it. But that's I a just good think, point. I think uh, what 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 kind of what kind of story is this? It, it it was published in Cosmos Science Fiction and Fantasy, and I'm I'm of the belief that it's fantasy generally because. Uh, there's a talking well there's a tree that kills a girl and and replaces well well it's spreading it's the tree, right? there's another tree growing yeah but uh if i was thinking you know well you know you, you guys know about synesthesia mm-hmm. my daughter has it oh there you go i wrote okay. a research paper about it sam you know about it i know what it is Okay, so when my daughter first told me, I thought she was literally insane. That's amazing. Luckily, the other daughter was sitting on it. It was the the middle of some dance recital we had to go to to watch for somebody to get credit in a high school class. And during the intermission, my oldest daughter is like, hey, 
when I hear words, they translate into textures and tastes in my mouth. And I went, oh, my gosh, she was already struggling with like some depression. I went, oh, I'm going to have to take her and we're going to have to put her somewhere to be treated. And, and my other daughter goes, oh, my gosh, I just heard about that on NPR. That's the coolest thing. And I went, really? Tell me. Tell me all about it. Mm-hmm. So that saved our whole situation. It was a fun conversation then. It's like a parlor trick she does now. <laughs> when people hear about it, they're like, oh, what's my name? What's this word? What's, you know. And that was in the Star is My Destination, right? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, in a lot of, it's in a lot of interesting stuff. I related to it in that way, too. I understood it much better because of Hannah. Hmm. I was thinking there's a way of reading this story as a science fiction story is, is that she is not actually, Latrice not actually talking to her. And that like we never hear what the tree actually says, but the tree's not actually talking to her in a in a voice that we can't hear. It's that, or maybe it is, but it's the you know the wind, the tapping, the the branches creak together. It's making sounds, right? It's doing actions. It's arms swaying in the wind, right? It's it is transmitting information. Well, there is information that is being transmitted, and. I know that um, some people think that plants uh, do better if you talk to them, right? Um, and cl- plants do communicate with other plants, uh, usually chemically, is my understanding. Uh, and some might do so auditorily. Um, they, you know, say, "I'm being eaten." They release a, a, a <laughs> right, toxin, and that. the other nearby yeah. plants go and say, "Oh, that's on Starship Sofa as well, right?" They, uh, uh, Jim Campanella's podcast, he's talked about how, yeah, he's a plant biologist, he talks about how uh, plants do communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. So, what's this What's this tree sending out as its message? I'm dying! Help me! <laughs> Help me, I'm dying! Right? And this girl, who is somehow, unlike her husband and uh, anybody else who lives in the area, I guess, is sensitive to what the tree is saying she it, she doesn't think it at all strange it, it, there's no evidence that she thinks it's strange that this tree can talk to her she just responds as if it's saying something actually important well because she has a previous relationship with it she says don't make me do it again or whatever i'm not mm-hmm. doing it again so right she already speaks tree language right i mean she got the message <laughs> from the, the leaves fluttering into her window yeah so. that's right, right. Now, Tamahome thinks this is an anime story, and I'd like to know why. I would like to hear that. It does. It's sort of nonsensical. I think anime stories are nonsensical. Is that what you mean, Tam? <laughs> Let it, him it, speak it, for himself. I thought the sound just dropped out for a second. Yeah, I kind of related to one of those animes with the weird tentacles and the woman. And I think it's, I'm trying. It's, more, we need more. Oh, wait. Um, I don't know. Am I dropping out? No, we can hear you fine. Oh, oh. oh I couldn't. So, um, I don't. I don't know. That's that's all I had to say. <laughs> well, it, it's definitely a weird story. It's it's got something going on that hmm. I don't. I think the I think it's a stri- strictly in the fantasy field, mostly because of the little apple tree at the end. Yeah, and them relating, you know, those tree those apples are already red, just like her cheeks mm-hmm. were. And that, 
Brad, right? Yeah, and so, the fact that we all recognized a lot of elements that made it feel like something very familiar, I think that's what he was experimenting with, maybe. And maybe that's why some of it isn't as cohesive as it could be, because let's face it, doesn't didn't he, like anybody, sometimes just dash off a story because it was an experimental thing and go, hey, they'll pay me for it, I could use the money. Yeah. Um, um, if he worked on it longer, it, maybe it would have been more cohesive or complete or something. But it was interesting to as an experiment, maybe. Well, and with I mean, my interpretation, I I um, pictured him giggling as he wrote it. <laughs> but <laughs> and that could be very likely at the same time. Sure. I'm going to do this. Think of kind of like you know taking Jesse's thing of it's the sex cycle. Let's look yeah. at it. Yeah, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And these people don't know what they're publishing. <laughs> but some of the descriptions he used, I mean, he's, he did spend a certain amount of time on descriptions like this thing about Dr. Blair drove slowly off, leaving down a narrow tree-lined street, leaving two dark streaks, two soiled lines that marred yeah. the pale glistening s- snow. And I'd look at that and go, you just feel like that is supposed to convey something I'm not getting. And maybe he just threw that it in there. It's a feeling, I, but it, it, the interpretation is totally up to you. Yeah. To and maybe it's and it, just to give you a sense of place. You no. know, the snow. Oh, he doesn't usually set things in Vermont. This is the only story I know where that is set there. Um, most Mostly it's uh, Colorado or California or, you know, Mars or something, you know, mm. a little. Sometimes it's. Uh, it's uh, elsewhere. There's another story that I really, really like, and I use quite a lot. Uh, I want to tell you about because it's not public domain. We won't be podcasting about it anytime soon. Uh, but it's kind of it's kind of got this similar feeling, and you can see the sort of the wife relationship as well. So uh, I I believe that Philip Kiddick, one of the reasons he was married five times is because <laughs> he didn't understand women very well, or at least he didn't understand. Um, how to deal with them, or maybe he thought they were always cheating on him. I, I, I heard he was crazy wife. too. That that it, probably he was helped. crazy. That yes. might have helped a bit. Yeah. So one of the one of the stories he wrote is called "Out in the Garden," and "Out in the Garden" is a very short, very short. It's one of the shortest stories he's ever written, um, and it's uh, about a uh, old friend who comes to visit uh, his college roommate, uh, who is now married, and. He comes to the door and says, hey, how's it going? And uh, he says, oh, I'm doing great. Uh, Wife's out in the back garden. You want to come meet her? He says, you're married. Well, let's go. So they go out in the backyard and they see uh, the woman and she spends all her time out in the backyard with Sir Francis. And he's like, who's Sir Francis? And he says, oh, Sir Francis is her pet duck. He's a white duck. And Sir Francis is in the garden with the wife, and Sir Francis is pecking the ground and eating spiders and and worms and uh, various things that, I guess, ducks eat. And then the next thing that happens is uh, the friend sort of says, wow, that's a nice duck you got, and looks around the garden, beautiful garden. She says, thanks, you know, I love it out here. It's really nice. And there's sort of an awkward silence. And then the friend says, this all reminds me of a poem. And the the husband says, what poem? And he says, uh, Leda and the Swan. Oh, yeah. And if you guys know Leda and the yeah. Swan, it's a it's a very interesting poem. It's it's about Leda was the a beautiful, uh, I think, nymph. 
who uh, gets raped by Zeus. Yeah. But Zeus won't allow her. Well, she, Leda doesn't want to get raped, obviously. But um, she says to uh, Zeus in his actual form, "No, you can't. You can't uh, hang out with me. I'm married." And she was married to a king of some kind, and so he, he transforms himself into a into a uh, swan and catches her while she's uh, bathing and rapes her. And that's produces, I believe, Paris is is the offspring of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was. Oh no 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 no! I'm sorry. It's not Paris. It's uh, it's the opposite. It's Helen. Helen is the offspring of that. Oh. That's where Helen came from. Helen of Troy. Okay, so he says that, and he just mentions the poem. It's like you know, oh, you know, it reminds me of Lady and Swan. And the wife freaks out and runs off. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's and a tell like, yeah <laughs> and it's like what what are you talking about well why are you so upset what's wrong honey and he says i think you better go joe or whatever it is <laughs> the friend goes away we never see him again and then nine months later a little boy is born <laughs> and and he's very strange his hair is like down <laughs> you know it's like so cute the corn silk like just like down, and the father can't relate to the son very well uh, until one day the uh, the they um, after the wife's still in the hospital, he takes Sir Francis back. Uh, I, I missed a spot, spot here. He takes Sir Francis back to the farm. We never see Sir Francis again. <laughs> so the son grows up with the family, um, and uh, after he's like eight years old or something, one day the wife goes out to get a haircut and grocery shopping. So the father has to relate to the son, and the son uh, doesn't call him by his name. He calls him by the name of, you know, his given name, whatever the husband's given name is. It's like, well, that's not good, right? Anyways, he says, he says hey, uh, son, uh, I wish we could relate more. Let's hang out. And the son says, oh, okay, well, uh, I was going to have a party, a secret party. <laughs> a secret party? He says, yeah, uh, do you want to come? And he says, yeah, and the father's really happy because finally he's connecting with his son and he he sort of has these thoughts beginning like, maybe he's really my, and you know, he can't he can't say it because then it would be true. So he, he goes inside and washes up and he comes back outside and he says, dad, where were you? The party's already started. And they're sitting at the little table. Uh, the little boy's got a bowl and he's, 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 uh, eating from the bowl and the father comes and sits down and says there's yours have some says the son and of course he's eating worms and spiders mm, delicious <laughs> and like such a great little story right <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> just golden but it's a repeated theme he doesn't trust his wife the wife is cheating on him um, well he was paranoid in general so that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you're paranoid about the things that are near you. You're not paranoid about the things you don't know about. Sure. Right. He's a writer. He stays at home and writes all day. But and, I love uh, that because that's his, his way of saying, okay, in the modern world, how would we understand that myth also? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the in the modern world. You're right. This is a related kind of – I like that because it's in the modern world. How would we understand – a Grimm's type fairy tale. If we came across that, we wouldn't understand all the pieces. They might seem disconnected. Wow, that's really Jesse. Thank you. That's good. It's a fun story, and it's it's really short. And the thing is, is these are all these. He is writing a weird kind of fantasy that is very unusual. I mean, when we think of fantasy, we think George R. R. Martin. We think Tolkien. We don't think of 
Philip K. Dick very much, but that's actually the kind of story he preferred writing. And when he writes science fiction, uh, short stories at least, he is not writing what he preferred, at least at the beginning. He couldn't sell most of mm. uh, the kinds of stories he preferred writing. Now, the only thing that's similar by anybody that I know, at least earlier, is um, there's a short story by Catherine Mansfield called uh, Miss Brill. You know the story? It's very famous. It sounds familiar. Miss Brill is an old woman in Paris. She's a maiden, obviously, given Miss Brill, right? right? And she's, she's about one day she goes to the park on a Sunday with a uh, stole over her shoulder uh, that's a fox. I guess that's a stole. I don't know. Anyway, she's wearing a fox. And the fox is quite worn out and old like her. Um, and she rubs the life back into its little eyes. And the eyes seem to say, you know, oh, what, where am I? What is happening? <laughs> right? And it's so cute. He's a little rogue, she thinks. Right? And the... The way we see the world is the way she sees the world, but not the way she sees it, but the way she's romantically thinking it. Mm-hmm. it is. And she goes to the park and she enjoys everything that's going on there. And none of it's about her. It's just about, you know, things, people at the park doing stuff. Little dog. And she thinks, oh, it's just like a theater dog. Because she thinks <laughs> she's in a like, what the hell's a theater dog? There's no such thing as a theater dog. <laughs> Maybe a stuffed dog, but she says, oh, it's a little theater dog. She's playing along. Oh, like she's... a dog in a show. Yes. Like a little circus. I know exactly what she's talking about. I am Miss Brill. Oh, wait, no. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, she she's sitting on the bench, right? And uh, there's an old couple nearby her, and she says, oh, I'm a part of the show, too. They look over at me, and they think, oh, isn't it a wonderful autumn day or whatever? And it's a little bit nippy because that's why I'm wearing the, the fox. Um, and then the old couple go away and a young couple come by and she's preparing to overhear them. She, she, she's, you know, carefully overhearing them. And the, the, the young man is saying, uh, why not? Why not? And the girl's saying, look at her. She's hilarious. And <laughs> they look at her and see this old woman who thinks she's really, uh, cool <laughs> wearing her fox stole and she said the, the young girl starts laughing giggling saying it's it looks just like a, a, a fried whiting kind of fried fish <laughs> like it doesn't look like a fox anymore it's so thread mm-hmm. uh, i don't know or whatever and right and then the next thing we see is she's she's on her way home she's not giving herself the usual treat she gives you know she gets usually stops and get an almond cake or something on the way home and when she gets home she puts the stole or the fox in a box on on her bed and when she closes the lid uh she hears the sound of crying it was it coming from the box uh-huh. and it's like it's like it's just a really sad story and it's not really fantasy i want to cry now too jesse you're breaking my heart. That's really sad. I- <laughs> <laughs> Those cruel young people. Well, and you know, Jesse, I like this connection because I was remembering the moment in the story when the husband points out to his father that the apples on the tree that are growing in an unseasonal time are the same color as his wife's cheeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he... He starts to make that connection. I mean, you could mm-hmm. see it as a sign of mourning, but... Um, Steve said softly, they're already red. How the hell can they be red? It's only April. Hmm. How the hell 
can they be red so soon? I don't know, Ed said. I don't know anything about apples. A strange chill moved through him. But graveyards always made him uncomfortable. Maybe we ought to go. Yeah. Submit it for your approval. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like that Ed, Ed is like, he knows what's going on. I remember all right, Ed said grimly. Come on. Let's get out of here. You know, it's like, and Ed is like, oh, I understand exactly too. what's happening. Let's go. Mm-hmm. That's and that's why I love the connection that you made is um, between that other story of Philip K. Dix because that's that. What would happen if this just dropped in here? I'm just going to write this and yeah, I, I like it mm-hmm. in terms of that. It made it made me understand the story a little better and kind of appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Well, can I ask a, a different kind of question, but related to Philip K. Dix? You mm-hmm. guys maybe have talked about this before and. Okay, I haven't caught up with every episode, I just have to admit, because, you know, I've been busy. But um, anyway, so I've been wanting, for next year, something I want Mm -hmm. to do is I've never read, other than when I was in college and took a science fiction class and had to read, uh, what's that, the High Castle book that he wrote, Mm -hmm. World War II, um, which I didn't appreciate because I really didn't know how to think about reading at the time, as the way I do now anyway. And I would like to read a novel of his, which I've never done. And I would like to read a decent story collection of his. And I've come across one by that's edited by Jonathan Lethem, I think is how to say the name. Oh, I love that author. Well, and see, and I was like, I think he's an author I like, but I'd have to go look. And so I was like, would do you have a novel you'd recommend for a beginner? So you're not just plunged into the, you know, insanity with no footing. And then... Um, well, I'm just saying, I get it, I, and I can balance it, but I would like to just go from a place where I could grow in an appreciation, or if I'm not going to appreciate it, have it based on something real, you know? And then also a story collection, because I know his stories are very different than his novels. Well, uh, I I don't know about a story collection. Like an I think anthology, or, sounds, yeah, you know, yeah. there's a bunch of them. There, there's. I, I'm sort of looking at them in the original publication, so I, I'm not super versed on that. But the Lethem one probably has a good introduction, at least. And there's probably a, a reason why those ones were put together. Is it the selected stories of Philip K. It, it, it might be. I think it's a fairly recent collection. I think, and that's why I've seen it pop up. That that was put out by yeah. Blackstone put out one uh, like that, and it's it's sort of a cross section right. of of things, mostly mostly weighted to the science fiction end rather than the fantasy end. Um, but be- as to novels, I've got some okay. ideas. You guys have any ideas? I think the I- only one I've read is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's interesting. Yeah. It's a good book. I've, both my children have described that to me, and I believe it would make me cry from the beginning, so I would like to go to that one later, but um, we could. Well, and people always point out the movie version, you know, Blade Runner, but I found the book to yeah. be more whimsical, I guess. It's not exactly, yeah, the, the feeling and the tone are yeah. completely different. So I, I'm not sure it's cryworthy, but I haven't read enough of him to well, know otherwise. Well, one daughter hates it with a passion because she's <laughs> an animal lover and the sheep on the roof or something. I don't know. Oh, and the yeah. other daughter, though, the other daughter has a much more interesting view of Philip K. Dick in general. For instance, she has a friend who um, has a very depressed look at the world, and that friend loves Kurt Vonnegut, and that's mm. how you say his name, and... What yeah. Rose says is, she goes, although Kurt Vonnegut is very funny a lot of the time, she goes, he's a base, he's got, he's kind of nihilistic or nihilistic, she thinks. And mm. she, although she doesn't always agree with what 
Philip K. Dick concludes in his novels, she loves the fact that he's very open-ended and he asks all these questions that every human being asks. And so, which I'm just like, he d- really? Okay, all right, I need to read some of them. And she says, so she'll tell me about some of these books and she'll go, so although I didn't like this answer, because it does, I, I don't agree with it, she goes, but the fact that he looked at it in this way is so fascinating and it opens anybody up to hope, opportunity, um, considering the questions from a different point of view than just what you're told by society around you. And so she keeps trying to hook her friend on Philip K. Dick for that reason, because he's also kind of different and interesting. Well, I I don't think I don't think he's best as a novelist. I think he's better as a short mm-hmm. story writer. But um, there are some novels that work. Uh, okay. I, I, I'm 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 not a thinking that Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is particularly a, a fantastic novel. What I think is it's so popular is because the movie is right. so well known and it does have good ideas. But a lot of his stuff has really great ideas. It's just the whether the the plot works right. as a whole and you know whether you feel a sort of sense of uh, unity mm-hmm. uh, throughout. So. One of the ones I'm very big fan of is called, um, uh, it's 1962, it's called Martian Time Slip. Oh. And this is, it's set on Martian Mars. Martian Time it's Slip. Kind of, I'm sorry, I just... Slip. Yeah, time Slip. slip. Thank time you. Slip. It's set on Mars, and um, uh, let me let me just give you... Uh, no spoilers. The, uh, it's, uh, it's probably not really that... I, I don't even remember the I know ending you hate or anything, that, so that term. I'm just saying. Uh, uh, it's about mental illness, <laughs> physics of time, and the son of the I think is the son of the the um, main character is uh, autistic. Maybe is is the way of describing him. He's very yeah. He says he's autistic. I guess that that's right. But this is back in a time when you know autism is not. Uh, yeah, you don't. Pretty early. Nobody knew really what it was, or was it yeah. right? And it's oh, hey, there's a review at the bottom of this by me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see what I wrote. I I wrote all my reviews without spoilers, oh, Julie. Thank you. Uh, while while the Mars of our reality is a fascinating planet in its own right, the Mars of fiction is more accessible and nearly as alien. Ray Bradbury's Mars was a walk through a pastoral allegorical mind. Of Bradbury's youth, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars was a fantasy land where many buck, uh, buckles were swashed and princesses were saved. But Philip K. Dick's Mars is the strangest of them all, a place where everyday reality is malleable and where political corruption continues as it does on Earth. Martian Time Slip, as read by the exceedingly well by Tom Parker, that's Grover Gardner, by the way, who oh. we're t- going to be talking about yeah. later on. Uh, is poignant and utterly fascinating journey across the blah, 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 blah. It, sa- it sounds like, um, <laughs> in a sense, some of the elements of, what was it? Was it The Star's My Destination? Or, yeah, in yeah a sense, it's not. Uh, you know, that one's got a driving yeah. plot. This is much more, um, it, he doesn't really do driving plots. Right. sort of is one He's thing after another. Things. But it's it's very, it's got a good ending, okay. I remember, and it's got a unity to it that some of his stuff doesn't. That's also, you know, uh, Man in the High Castle has a unity to it, even though it is sort of a bunch of little characters sort of strung together into a, a plot. The, the plot actually does work. Mm-hmm. So that's another one terrible. you'd recommend. That's and then, supposed to be his best uh, novel, another right, one in High Castle. 
Uh, it's it's one it's one Hugo, so I think it's a very very good novel. It it kind of blows your mind in a way, I think. Um, and then I'm a big fan of one that I don't get a lot hear a lot about. It's a 1968 mm-hmm. novel called Galactic Pot Healer, which is uh, I think it's just Galactic hilarious because it's about pot healer. Pot healer. Okay. Yeah, so there's uh, the pot healer of the main is the main character. That is a guy whose job it is to fix broken pots. I like it already. Like, you've got uh, a clay pot, you know, it's been broken. You take it to him, and he can heal it using some art, you know, technology that they have in the future. They can, I don't know. Did you write about turn this? Clay this sounds into, familiar somehow. I think I probably okay. did as well. Oh, let's or, see if there's... No, or no maybe you mentioned... Bottom, or, so. I don't know. This, this appeals I, to me. Probably. I like this idea. But on, the, on an alien planet... At the bottom of an ocean, there's a giant creature called the Glimmung. And the Glimmung is basically a Lovecraftian monster of some oh. kind that's planning to take over the universe, but it's quite friendly. <laughs> I'm a benevolent <laughs> And it needs some help. Yeah, it needs the help of the main character, uh, okay. the Galactic Pot Healer. Uh, I guess he has to help restore the, the temple like of R- Relay. I have you know, to find like, this book. Say no up. more. I mean, you could give it's me other fun. books to read, but say no more. I love the concept of this. I, I have to get it and read it. Well, let me also tell you that uh, there's another book that's related that I've not yeah. read, but I want to read very badly. It's called Nick and the Glimmung. <laughs> uh, it's a children's story set in the same Who universe. Who wrote it? Did he write it? <laughs> Dick. Yeah, it's his only children's book. I can't, I can't even and it's, it's illustrated of him writing too. a children's book. Oh my gosh. Just, sorry. It says, uh, Nick and his family and a cat, Horace, leave Earth in 1992 because pet ownership has been criminalized. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like him. I like it. That's hilarious. I want to get this book. <laughs> it's it's illustrated that's, that's what I, I want to get see. that book too. I, I just like the idea of him writing a children's book I, and it could be the best children's book ever but I just the idea of him wrapping his mind around that absolutely I, I think you know he's he, he did have children and uh, I you know I can imagine sitting being one of Tolkien's children that'd be like daddy tell us more right alright there was a dragon it's <laughs> like and your mom is cheating on me. <laughs> oh, Daddy! I'm not going to tell you about your mom, but let's hear about Lita and the Swan one more time. Or how about Europa and the Bull? Okay, let's tell that one. Except he's Hera in that story, right? I think I think we nailed this. What do you think? Yep. We got it down as as close to the mat as we could. I think so. I was going to mention. Not that uh, much say? to it. It's pretty the- short. I was going to mention the best of Philip K. Dick. It's an anthology that came oh. out a few years ago. That might be good for uh, short stories. Oh, good. I, I, I put a link in the Skype. Oh, I, that's that little thing I heard. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see that one. Yeah, that's um, that was 80s? Oh, 78. So the, he was still alive when that came out. And let's see the contest. Beyond the Door. Great story. We've done mm-hmm. that on the podcast. The Eyes Have It is his shortest story, as far as I'm aware. That's about a guy who goes crazy uh, after reading a novel he finds on the oh, bus. Oh, <laughs> you put that on for ha- Halloween or something? Or no, you, Maybe. I read that, and in fact, I was going to read it on the podcast because I was just like, that was so funny. I loved it. Um, I'm not a big fan of Mr. Spaceship. That's on there. Um, that's about. That's kind of... Uh, 
you know, I think it even preceded um, the ship who sang. It's it's about a guy who has his brain taken out of his body and put in a spaceship. Um, it's a, one of his science fiction stories. The Crystal Crypt. Now, that one, I was talking with Greg Marguerite uh, about how, how, to, how we would approach that story as a podcast. Because it was one of the last ones I uh, had, was talking to him mm-hmm. uh, before he mm-hmm. died. Uh, but I, I don't understand that story well enough. <laughs> Uh, I, well, maybe it's just too simple. It's it just seems to me it's pretty simple. It's it's a, a very science fictiony story. Defenders, the gun, the skull. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's not a bad story. Second variety is kind of scary, but good. Variable man, too long. <laughs> so this is not the greatest collection. I'm sorry to tell you. Uh, Beyond the door is I I think it's one of the greatest short stories I've ever read. It's so yeah, good. but you haven't looked at the Jonathan Lethem. It might be good compared to that. So we don't know. No. I will keep that in both of them in mind. And yeah, here, yeah, that selected stories of Philip K. Dick that is available from Blackstone. Okay, that's and it it includes all, maybe the greatest uh, Philip K. Dick story um, upon the dull earth, mm-hmm. which is fabulous well, um, yeah, because the thing that's interesting with these short stories too is I love listening to them because of course that takes you into one place in your head, but but there are details that you get just from reading stories that kind of stand out in a different way altogether. You know, mm-hmm. so um, even if I've listened to them, like when you've talked about them and I'll, the skull and I'll go find them sometimes on LibriVox and things like that. Um, I'd like to actually see the stories, too. So, OK, thank you, because I've, I've read about half in some categories of my 2012 ideas that. Things like, if I don't write these down and say I'm going to try to read one, I'll never read them ever. They'll stay on my list, you know. And Go for, if you want, if you want to talk about Galactic Pot Healer, I'm I'm up for reading it again. It's it was one of the first Philip K. Dick things I read, and that just I was, what the hell is going on? This is, this is well, if you want to read it and Very, talk about it sometime, that would be great. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, it, it's read by Grover Gardner under the name Tom Parker, so it's it, but he's it sounds so good. You know, he's great narrator. What yeah, have I heard from him that he read that I was like, I've never heard of this guy, but he's so good. The first thing so, I heard, uh, I bought. A, uh, I'm oh, not sure that? that was by somebody I'd never heard of. Who I was like, who is I? I need to hear more from this guy. He was so great. Hmm, that'd be uh, which I recommend to all of you. Seth uh, you're, are you finished that? Yeah, and I reviewed it the, uh, on SFF. Oh, shows you what I'm doing. Well, you know <laughs> what? A lot of stuff gets reviewed on there, and I'm way behind in my reviews, which I apologize for. But um, but that was one that, okay. in fact, I didn't get it through you guys. I got it from the library and listened to it, and I was just fascinated by it because I thought it made great adventure story set back in that time. But um, as, of course, Catholic, I was looking at it going, how is this? And he was so respectful to any of the source material, but yet used it with zombies and hordes of locusts and, you know, Herod and all these. And I was just like, this is the greatest midrash ever as a commentary on all kinds of things. I just, it was so fun. I loved it. What's what's a midrash? Midrash is... It's a Jewish uh, tradition of looking at scripture by saying, you know, we're not told much about this particular event, which is important. So we're going to say, 
well, here's how we could imagine this story going in the details we don't know and looking at what can you draw out of the scripture. And so it's kind of like a storytelling Uh, tradition. It's what we're doing in this podcast. You kind of like that, yeah. And so what he does basically (laughs) is he takes when the, you know, baby Jesus is born and Joseph in a dream is told, you better get everybody down to Egypt because bad things are going to happen. So he wakes up in the middle of the night and here we all go down to Egypt. And then later, the only rest, then um, Herod comes through and, you know, kills all the kids two years and under in Bethlehem. But what, so the next thing you're told about the Holy Family, basically, is, um, and then he had another dream saying it was okay to go back home. So you don't know how did the trip go? What did he do while they were there? How did they support themselves? Did they live with little Jewish colonies in Egypt? What, what was going on? And so what this author does is take um, that whole trip and say, okay, what if those three magi who showed up were actually people who were wanted by the law who had grabbed those robes and were escaping and needed somewhere to hide out? And through circumstances and similar goals, they wind up helping the Holy Family escape. And so then you've got backstory on some, but well, read my review. But anyway, it was, I liked it. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, by the guy who did Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. And it's, but it's the first book where he just used his own words instead of inserting his stuff into someone else's. And. Mm. Well, he did. Well, I know, but it's it's some part back. true, but he's not quoting it. And I mean, for the other two, he took those like Lincoln's diaries and then. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice, and put his own things into them. And this, yeah, it's the story is from a, a text already, but he's interpreting it himself and how he's telling it. And pe- I've never read his other stuff, but people who have say, the reviews I read said, this is really his best stuff, because he's allowed to tell the whole story himself. And I really, you know, I loved it. I was pleased I've recommended it to everybody from like you guys to our priest to who also likes, you know, supernatural stuff. He's often told my husband who runs our website, he's like, if we could just put a Klingon war cruiser coming in over the picture of the church from the sky, I would be so happy. But I know I can't get away with that. So (laughs) anyway, that's I wanted to uh, on an on an unrelated podcast note, I think we're closing in on the end of this. We'll, we'll probably cut it off right, right at the end of that, unless somebody else has something fantastically interesting to say that's mm-hmm. related. I just wanted to ask Julie, I read a story in the paper of uh, yesterday uh, about the makeup of uh, our Canadian churches by gender. Oh. And I wanted to find out if it was if it was similar, at least and to your knowledge, mm-hmm. in the States. Um, three quarters of... Uh, attendees at churches in Canada are now female. I thought that that was astounding. And they made a um, a long list of all the theories Mm -hmm. that people had, and most of them were contradictory, which I thought was hilarious. But there was a couple of, um, a couple of ones that made a little bit of sense, but, you know, not having just, you know, thinking through them in my own mind, I I don't, I don't know. That's good science, but, is do you find that to be the case that three quarters of, I have are female? read nothing with you know specific numbers. I've seen articles here and there saying that yeah, the preponderance of 
either people helping in churches, you know, volunteering or people who are yeah, attending tends much more to the female than a balance than it used to. And the theories I always see, which may speak to where I've read things and I don't even remember now because you just see it mentioned sometimes is um, uh, because, of course, it's usually talking about the Catholic Church when I'm reading it. And it's uh, Anglican or yeah, more United, traditional. Like, they talked about all yeah. the churches, but the church is the big church. Okay, uh, so and, and that tends yeah. sometimes to be more traditional. I know there's different. No, it's very, it's oh, okay. Liberal. Well, it's see like, here, I guess, yeah, here it's all and, that. It's it's either called Anglican or it's called Episcopalian, which we're told is the same thing. But I think, yeah, you're right. The Episcopalian tends can be very traditional or very liberal. It's weird. And then they all argue with each other. But anyway, so, but... um, Do you find that, like, you go into the church and you say, there's no men here? But see, no. In my church, it's all families. Yeah. And there can be single people, but it's a lot of men and a lot of women. And ours tends to be one of the more traditional churches in the area, which I find really interesting. And people will come from all over to come to it. So it may be that way in other churches, but when we've been visiting other parishes, like on vacation, it's been a pretty even balance. So, but they could be very right. I just haven't seen it, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't. The only time I go to churches is when there's a right. funeral, or basically that's it, or wedding. Yeah. Occasionally, so you're seeing friends, not a congregation. family usually. All right. Well, I mean, family. of the yeah, friends uh, and family yeah, no, of the people no, no. who yeah, died. So. Died. Yeah, 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 and and my, and my families are are swayed male and female, yeah. so <laughs> the rooms are, you know, uh, you know, my father had four mm, brothers, mm-hmm. so there's no, uh, there's a lot of aunts and uh, not a lot of uh, actually, and you know how many children those uh, five mm. brothers produced? Three. Whoa! Believe it's not insane, and one of them is me. <laughs> And and how many do you have, Jesse? Yeah, continuing Zero. that trend. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I just yeah, I think it's astounding, you know. I'm trying to think because my husband. Oh, go ahead. children. Total. Yeah. My husband is one of five, but two, five, eight. Interesting trends are happening, is what I'm saying, and I just don't understand where like. I know why I don't want to have children, but I don't understand why everybody else wants wants to not have children. It can't be for the exact same reasons because my reasons are personal. Well, and don't you think that that's part of a kind of a general idea from when it was the worry was overpopulation in the 70s and whatever, and everybody kind of got the idea of, oh, the better have fewer or less children. It's also good in terms of plus whatever your personal ideas are. And birth control made it yeah. more possible. But things things are changing though, and I just don't understand exactly. Uh, I, I I just thought that that was a really interesting story. And <laughs> well, I have to say, a review that I re- or a review I need to do, and I'm sorry, Jenny, I'm way behind. But um, Farmer no, in the Sky doesn't matter. Well, it was fascinating oh. because I mean, it was you know, it was your basic Heinlein juvenile, which I very much enjoyed. The very straightforward, but the huge worry was the overpopulation 
that's why they were having to emigrate because you couldn't get anything and you'd never got meat and you never, because there weren't the resources. And I was reading it going, wow, this. There was also sort of a intractable government. Too, yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, this really takes me back to my youth of reading these kind of stories. And people would report about this kind of worry on the news. I'm like, and here we are. And what happened? It didn't happen because everybody kind of became aware of it and changed. I'm like, now we have kind of the opposite worry. There's not enough of this sometimes. Who's going to take care of all these old people? <laughs> yeah, well, they better hurry up because, you know, I'm getting older as we go. And <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.